Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born episode 86. Today's guest is Dr. Valerie Worthington. Valerie Worthington is the author of Training Wheels, How a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Road Trip Jump-Started My Search for Fulfilling Life. Valerie is one of the early female pioneers of BJJ in America. She holds a third-degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. She has her PhD. She is a college professor at Saybrook University. Valerie talks her time spent under BJJ legend Carlson Gracie Sr. out in Chicago. She talks about how she had everything she was supposed to want, a fulfilling career, friends, a condo in Chicago, but something just did not feel right. She talks about her battle with depression and how a BJJ road trip helped jumpstart her search for a fulfilling, meaningful life. We talk about some stories from the book, just the courage it took to drive across the country by herself and train in all these different gyms with amazing stories that unfold. It's a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Valerie Worthington. And remember, life is built, not born. Valerie Worthington, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Val, it is an honor to have you on. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? I come from a small town in New Jersey. I am the child of two psychologists, which a lot of my friends say explains a lot about me. I am someone who's had the opportunity to travel a lot. I found jujitsu or jujitsu found me when I was about 28 and was looking for a contrast or something to do that was physical when I was in graduate school and just thinking way too much. I live in Philadelphia right now after having lived all over the country. And it was like a homecoming because it is only about an hour from where I grew up. It feels really familiar and really it's the right place for me. I work for a university called Saybrook University. They're based in Pasadena, and it is a humanistic university. I work in the Department of Mind-Body Medicine, and it's the first job I've ever had where, since I've been doing jujitsu, where the fact that I train was the thing that tipped the scales in my favor, as opposed to being something that my employers would sort of put up with and hope that it wasn't going to be an issue. And then the other thing that I do is professional coaching. And that's something that I do at my job, but it's also something that grew out of my becoming a higher and higher belt in jujitsu. So we can talk about coaching as much as you want or as little as you want. But the idea there was that I wanted to help the people who were coming to me for help and I wanted to do it in an ethical way. And so that's where professional coaching comes into the picture. A lot to unpack there. I think you're selling yourself a little short. Read your book, Training Wheels, How a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Road Trip Jump-Started My Search for Fulfilling Life. Your time under Carlson Gracie Sr., nephew of Elio, son of Carlos Gracie, one of the legends in BJJ that you trained you out in Chicago. I'd like to talk about your road trip 
I was riding in the passenger seat with you reading this book, and I was nervous a couple times. <laughs> as a guy, as a black belt in jiu-jitsu, I was nervous. Growing up in Philly myself, I'm like, I don't know if I'd go in that room. I want to start back all the way from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Pennington, New Jersey. Tell us about your family growing up. What the dinner table look like? You had a dinner. Who was at the table? What was going on? So at 10 years old, my 12-year-old sister was at the table. My parents were at the table. And my parents were big proponents of the family dinner. We would try as much as possible. As my sister and I got older, it, it became harder, but we would still at least once a week have a family dinner. And we actually talked about stuff and sometimes talked about our feelings. And one of the ways that my family shows affection, basically the main way my family shows affection is by busting each other's chops. So being from Philly, I'm sure you know that dynamic very well. And so there was always a lot of laughing at the table. We liked each other and respected each other and still do. And so I think that was all very important in shaping who I am and what I value. I have a couple of friends that studied psychology and I always feel like they're trying to figure me out. They're always like inner analyzing you and I get a little uncomfortable. What was it like growing up with two psychologists as parents? That couldn't be easy. What was that like? My parents were and are one of the things that I appreciated about them and still do is that they they never used their education as an excuse for not having to do the work, if that makes any sense. And that's the way I try to live my life. Like when I'm teaching jujitsu, so for example, with competing, if someone asks me if they should compete, then I, I tell them my experiences with competing and I don't expect them to do anything that I, that I haven't done or that I haven't tried myself. You're concerned that your friends are trying to figure you out or get inside your brain. Each of my parents has a quote that's like perfect for describing what my life was like. My friends would always say, are your parents trying to psychoanalyze me? And I told my parents that and my father said, not for free. So that's one. The other quote from my mom is all my friends would say, oh man, your parents are psychologists. Your family must be so normal. Your childhood must have been so sane and just wonderful. And my mother's quote is, no, our family is just as crazy as anybody else's. The only difference is that we know why. <laughs> you just know, not doing it for free. And you know why. That is, that is perfect. That's, that's it. I want to fast forward a little bit here, but if someone asked the 18-year-old version of Val Worthington what she wanted to be when she grew up, what would the 18-year-old version of you say? Yeah, good question. I think I had sort of a vision of myself as a, you know, maybe a writer or something that would tap into what I consider to be my sense of humor. So I definitely try to lead with humor. Not everything that I say is funny to others, but it's funny to me and I have to spend more time with myself than anybody else. So some something in the in the writing or maybe publishing arena, I really didn't know. And I was I went to college and was lucky to be surrounded by really smart kids who were also really funny. And so I was an English major and I thought that I was gonna sort of head in that kind of direction. So quick bio of you here, right? So you get your a bachelor's degree from Dartmouth, one of the great institutions in the country. Then you get your PhD at Michigan State. Then fast forward, you're living in Chicago. You have your own place, favorite condo in the city. 
You have a job that many would find fulfilling and important. You're training with Carlson Gracie Sr., one of the legends in the BJJ community. But you basically, you felt hollow and you couldn't escape. This is from your book. You couldn't escape the sinking feeling that something was very, very wrong. Take us from there. In the book, I, I mentioned that Carlson Sr. passed. And that was February 1st, 2006. And it was unexpected. He'd been hospitalized, but we were expecting him to recover. And his death was a galvanizing moment. I'd been leading up to needing to make a change in my life. But as often happens, major milestones can often make you take stock. And what was happening with me was that I was depressed. So I had this job that I was making a good living. I had a condo. I had friends. I had all these things that you're told you're supposed to want. And they weren't fulfilling me. And I had started to come to the realization that that was true precisely because jujitsu gave me so much joy and these other things didn't. When Carlson died, it sort of left all of us kind of reeling, those of us who were training under him and with his son, Carlson Jr. I guess I came to the realization that all these things that I was supposed to want just weren't right for me. And for a long time, I had thought that that was my fault. I had thought that there was something wrong with me because I didn't want those things. I can't say that there was a galvanizing moment or a realization that I needed to do something different, but I had gotten a promotion at work. And instead of being happy about the promotion, I would go into my office every day, shut the door and cry for an hour. And then I would leave or I would open the door and I'd try to get on about my day. And eventually it dawned on me that I couldn't live this way. So I think that what had happened is that I had sort of gone along doing the things that were expected of me because I thought they were the things that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the life that I constructed was a really beautiful life, just not for me. Yeah. yeah. You have that basic American dream where you have, you go to college, you get your degree, you buy your house, you get your job, and you're supposed to probably get married and have a kid. And then, you know, you're supposed to do all this stuff. And that is not for everybody. But we have this thing where it's like, you have to travel down that lane, be normal. That's a bad word. That's a subjective word, but like, oh, that everyone's doing this. But like so many people take that path. And it's just not for them, right? Like, why do you think we have to hold ourselves up to normality, if that's a word? Like, where do you think that comes from? It's a good question. I I think I, maybe I'll answer a question that's alongside it. And maybe we can kind of back into an answer to your question, because I don't really have an answer to that one. I think, and I can only speak for myself, I did what made sense for me to do or that, that I thought it made sense for me to do. There was no question that, but that I was going to go to college. And I'm super fortunate that I had that opportunity. And then after college, everyone was looking for a job. So I looked for a job. And then a couple of years into my job, I thought about graduate school. So then it was time to go to graduate school. And eventually I sort of took myself down a path that led logically to where I was, but it didn't account for what I, what I really wanted. 
And what I realized in retrospect, because of course hindsight's 2020, but what I realized in retrospect is that I didn't even know what I didn't know. I didn't know that I didn't want those things. I didn't know that there were other things to want. And that's why I internalized the feelings that I was having into, there must be something wrong with me because this is what I'm supposed to want. I won't say I was fed a bill of goods, but that there were certain expectations placed on me because that I didn't question, societal expectations. And it wasn't until I thought to question them that I realized, oh, there are other options. Two little mini stories in the book that I found pretty revealing, not of you, but of the people you were with. One is when you decided to quit. You got a promotion. You're working for this firm. You're living in Chicago. You should be super happy. You got this big promotion. Then you said you're going to quit. And then people came into your office. A guy came into your office. like, are you sure you want to do this? It was almost like he was mad at you for quitting because it almost was a reflection on him. He came at you so strong. Like, I don't know if my parents would come at me that strong if I quit my job. Than the way yeah. this like worker did, right? And yeah. it's like, he, why are you doing this? You can't do this. You can't quit. What happened with this guy, I tendered my resignation. Word got around that I had done this. And this coworker came into my office and was really agitated and kept saying to me, you know, you can't do this. Why are you doing this? Who do you, basically, who do you think you are? And the impression that I got or what I realized is that he was viewing my decision about my life as a reflection on his decisions about his life. It wasn't that, but what that tells me is that there was some part of him that maybe wanted to make a different choice or had questions about his own choices. And I was simply a mirror up to that, you know, up to that part of him that he was either trying to keep hidden from himself or he was afraid of, but I was lucky, I think, in that I, I'm a crier. (laughs) Crying is a visible indication that something is wrong. And I can't pretend that, that nothing is wrong here. I have to look at it. Whereas with some people, maybe with this person, he did the same thing, the same things that I did in that he just sort of went along and was like, okay, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. And may have sort of had like a vague buzzing in the back of his head that not everything was right. But then along comes me doing something completely different. And that surfaced for him, these things that he hadn't been for whatever reason, putting on his radar. That writing felt like tension. Like I read that, like I felt tension, like that writing was so good. And that story was so good. The way you told it, I was uncomfortable. Like you're watching the office and Michael Scott, that is so uncomfortable. You can't even watch it. Like, like that reading that the way that guy acted, it's almost like I'm ready to call security, get this guy out of here. He's losing his mind in front of me because I'm doing something that has nothing to do with him. I think you hit a core deep down in him that he wished he maybe made other choices. Another quick story from the book I want to get to. There's always a point where the journey begins. You were talking to your realtor, right? And your realtor's like, all right, we're going to sell your house. And then what are you going to do next? Are you going to buy a house? No. Are you going to live in a different city? No. Where are you going to live? I have a car and I'm going to drive around. And that was the point of no return. And the realtor was, it was like that uncomfortable laugh at the end. Like, okay, well, good luck with that. that I thought that was the point where your journey began. Yeah. So what happened was, and this is what I mean by fumbling my way through. 
I knew that I couldn't stay in the job that I had. And so what I had negotiated was a a part-time, a half-time position until I figured out what the hell I was doing. So I had a part-time position at the same job and I started doing the math and I thought, I can't afford this home anymore. I have to sell it. So I put the the condo on the market because I knew that on the salary that I was making, I wasn't going to be able to make the payments anymore. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do after that. Was I? And so when my realtor asked me those questions, I honestly had no answers. Are you going to rent a smaller place in Chicago? I don't know. Are you going to move? I don't know. And that was a galvanizing moment where in talking with her and just speaking aloud that I didn't know, that's when the idea formed that, okay, well, the idea of moving into another place in Chicago doesn't thrill me. The idea of moving to another place, I don't even know where I would go at this point. So maybe I'll go everywhere and nowhere. Maybe I'll just buy a car and maybe I'll just drive around and since I love jujitsu, maybe I'll train jujitsu in different places. You know this. Back then, there weren't, there was no YouTube, and there there weren't road trips, and there weren't a lot of visitors between academies. People just didn't do it as much as they do and now. There, there weren't a lot of women. Oh my gosh! I and there mean, weren't a lot of women. Before we go into that, you mentioned how jujitsu was the only thing where you felt happy. Where that made you feel like yourself. But as soon as the training wore off, you're kind of driving home and all of a sudden world, the world came back. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So one of the big things about that, one of the big sort of concepts that comes up over and over again at my job at Saybrook is the notion of being present, right? Present in the moment. And I didn't spend a lot of time in the present moment in my job and in my life. There was a lot of, oh, it's almost Friday. So I'll hang on to the weekend. And there was a lot of, oh, I regret that decision I made in the past. So a lot of living in the future and in the past. And jujitsu was a place where I was fully present. So I wasn't thinking about, is it Friday? I was thinking about, do I hip escape from here or do I try to recompose some sort of guard? And I was also in my body. And that, that to me is really important too, because I feel like so much of my life was spent just from the neck up because I was constantly thinking whether it was thinking about work or graduate school or like ruminating because I'm real good at ruminating and catastrophizing. And that, that contributes to my depression a lot. So jujitsu was, it was wonderful and it was awful. And the reason it was wonderful is because it gave me those moments of sort of transcendent presence, right? I was just only there. I was in my body and I was on the mat and I was completely focused on where I was and what I was doing. And that gave me joy. And that was what was awful about jujitsu because it just highlighted for me how little of that I had in the rest of my life. So it became more and more unbearable. I wasn't able to continue to act like everything was okay because I knew how much better it could be because of jujitsu. Why do you think, and you hear this from so many people that train, why do you think jujitsu is such a vehicle for present moment awareness? From your experience, why can you be so in the moment in jujitsu, but the moment you step off the mat, you leave, you drive home and some point between the academy and home, the wave of the world kind of crashes back to the shore, right? 
Why do you think jujitsu is so good at bringing you in the present moment? For me, it's because it's so all-encompassing. It is a physical challenge. And that's what I was looking for when I started jujitsu. I was looking for a physical challenge. I had run a couple of marathons. I liked working toward and achieving a physical goal. So when I found jujitsu, I thought, oh, this is my new physical goal. And it quickly became a mental and psychological and emotional experience as well. And then eventually it became spiritual. So there's an element of each of these things. There's an element of spirituality. There's an emotional element. There's a psychological, mental, in addition to the physical. The reason it enables me to be present is because it requires presence of me along all of those dimensions. No matter how bad of the day or good of the day, once you get on the mat, it's, everything's neutral. Can I add something? No, please. Add something real quick? Yeah, I think I, I think you've hit on something else that is really important, which is that in jujitsu, your roles outside of jujitsu don't matter. So whoever you are in quote unquote, the real world, that doesn't matter. And what matters is that you're working toward this other goal and that you're being a good training partner and that you are learning from each other and just trying to be better every day. And regardless of where you come from or who you are, what you do, that doesn't matter. It's so true. Like on the mat, our school's a microcosm, like every other school, we have guys that are millionaires or girls that are millionaires. And then we have PhDs and lawyers asking questions to kids that are either out of jobs or making 20 grand a year working at a restaurant. And the kid at 20 is so good. And they're like, hey, how do you do this? And for an hour, they're learning from the other person. I worked $10 million as we're asking the person who's broke for their advice for an hour, right? And it's just such a level changer. In that school, they're here and the millionaire's here. The tax attorney's here and the unemployed bartender's here, but the unemployed bartender is a beast on the mat and that's his teacher, right? And it's so humbling. But get back to your story. What I find so amazing. So you go on a road trip. One in 06, there weren't jujitsu road trips. And then also, here's the fear factor coming in. Like when you would go to the other academy, most of the academies wanted to show you like who was boss. So you would come onto the mat and they wanted to show you they were the boss. They were the alpha in the room. So you had to must go through a gauntlet. Then on top of that, a female driving across the country by herself, there were very few women in jujitsu back then. Very few. So not too many girls, no road trips. There wasn't cross training, but you said, hey, let's do it. Let's jump in the car and drive across the country and do it. Take the story from there. It's just such a wild story. So I'll tell you what, one of the things that I realized in retrospect is that I was really fortunate that I didn't know what I didn't know. And there's a section in the book where I, I stop in at Amal Easton's gym And he and Elliot Marshall were very kind to me. And Amal said to me, you want to be careful. Like this is, this is not something that people normally do. And there's clannishness among the different jujitsu schools and things like that. And I just hadn't realized that at all. I just knew that I needed a change and that jujitsu was a way for me to make that change. I talked with Carlson Jr. So after Carlson Sr. passed, I talked with Carlson Jr. about needing to do this or wanting to do this. And he did give me his blessing. And he did say, I used to go to other people's gyms. And since my dad is who my dad was, they would let him know. But 
I wanted to learn as well. And so he did give me his blessing to do that. And I think that being a woman who trained, so at the time I was a purple belt. And I think I was more of just a curiosity than perceived as a threat. So I could come in and my thing was always trying to disarm the men in the room by making them laugh. So fortunately, Mm -hmm. that's where my sense of humor did come in handy. Even if they didn't laugh at my joke, maybe they would laugh at me and that would make them feel more comfortable training with me. I think I was just more of a curiosity than anything else. And there were some people who were really lovely and some people who didn't notice. I didn't get any reception that was negative. There was either sort of benign disinterest or there was genuine curiosity. You know, like you were saying, there just weren't too many people coming from other gyms. And Mm -hmm. another thing was, it was usually impossible to get someone on the phone. <laughs> so, yeah. so, cause I would try to call ahead of time and it was virtually impossible to get anybody. Not, I mean, there were some people, but, but for the most part, the phone was just ring and ring and ring. And then I think I wrote a lot about how I spent a lot of time sitting in my car outside of gyms, trying to psych myself up to go in. Yeah. So there was a lot of that. And a lot of me just going, hi, I'm just in town for a day or two. And I just wanted to train. Is that okay? And people sometimes just not computing. Like you want to wait, you want to do what now? You're from what? You're from where? Okay. I mean, yeah, I guess. Well, here, let's get a waiver. Yeah. A Mac fee. Okay. How's $20 sound. And so there just wasn't that there weren't those protocols. Everybody was generally like, okay, she wants to train. I guess that's fine. We'll see how this goes. I like how you mentioned that sometimes you're sitting in your car waiting for an earthquake to happen so you would not have to go in there and train. I kind of feel your pain a little bit, like always being one of the smaller guys in the room. Like when I would be training in the city of balance, there's a bunch of MMA guys down there. There's a bunch of competitive dudes. They're beasts. They're strong. There's some of the, some guys are training twice a day. Like I was, sometimes I was training three times a week, right? Four times a week would be an amazing week for me. You're going against people that are bigger, stronger, younger, faster, way more technical. And like, you would walk in, you're like, oh, you just take a deep breath and like, just walk up the steps and you just had to force yourself step by step. Like, all right, here we go. Deep breath, walk in and I'm doing this. And it's, and you could see like, if an earthquake happened, like, all right, not too bad. Like you wouldn't be too upset if an earthquake happened as you're walking in. So you don't have to do that. How about you mentioned this, you equate Brazilian jiu-jitsu to a marriage. And you said amazing effortless chemistry at first, But at some point that chemistry ends and you have to work at it. You fall in and out of love with it. Sometimes you need a break. At the end of 2013, you took a break. If someone has to take a break, take it. Don't judge them. Show some empathy because sometimes life happens. That excitement's not always going to be there because it gets very hard. It's challenging. It's demanding on your mind and body. And sometimes you have to step away. Could you speak to that? Sure. And I should mention I'm not married. So all of the my description of jujitsu as a marriage is based on what I've observed in my friends and family. But I think there's I think there's a a there there. I think that and again, in my experience, I had such the ardor for jujitsu, like my my flame burned bright and I loved it so much. And that's not sustainable. Like for me, the rest of life had to have a place. If jujitsu is the only leg of my table then my table doesn't stand. So I had to learn how to create an interdependent life, a life where 
there was room for jujitsu, but there was also room for me to make a living, for me to have things that are outside of jujitsu. And there were many times in my jujitsu career when I didn't have those things. I was constantly training and traveling to train. And my joke was jujitsu was my job, but my job didn't pay anything. So my hobby was making a living. <laughs> and, and so you know, my life circumstances have changed. So for example, I'm going to be 53 this year. I, I own a home. I have a cat who's sitting here. I have other things that I like to do. My body isn't up to it as much as it used to be. So I, you know, I want to spend more time with my family. I want to spend more time with my friends. So I still love jujitsu. I'm still in love with jujitsu, but that initial passion for it has mellowed into something that I think is actually stronger because I recognize both the benefits and pitfalls of training and I still choose it every day. It's almost like the lust turns to love. Yeah. Right. I like that. Right? I like yeah. That. Where it's just all emotional at first. I love this. You see the new people come in and they're twice a day or they're there every day, six days a week, and they never miss. But then all of a sudden they get a job or they get a husband or a wife, right? And then all of a sudden they have a baby and they have a job and a baby and they buy a house and they have a job, a baby and a house. Like it's life slowly walks into your life. Usually not everyone, but most people, more people than not put it that way. That comes in and something happens with a job and a house or an injury. And it's like, you can't go seven times a week. You know what I mean? You can't have open mat at noon to three on Sunday because you have other things you got to do in your world, right? And so it's like, what do you do after that? Like there's an author, John Acuff. What do you do the day after perfect? Oh, I'm not going to have a drink. And you don't drink for 12 days in a row, but that 13th day, you have a couple glasses of wine and you're like, oh, I fell off. But like, what do you do the 14th day? That's the magic, right? What do you do the day after perfect? What do you do when your schedule's not perfect? I think that's huge. We kind of jumped in around the same time in jujitsu. We've been training roughly around the same amount of time. How has your jujitsu evolved? How do you know when it's time to evolve and adapt? Because obviously, I, I don't train the way I did 15 years ago. Even if I'm there as much as I was before, like it, you just can't. You can't do 10 rolls three times a week and get up and go to work at, at 50 years old. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't yeah. Do it. So there's, so there are sort of different elements to, or different ways that my game has evolved or that my jujitsu has evolved. And one of them is in terms of the, the types of techniques that I use that I find is cyclical. So I'll, you know, be focusing on certain things for a while. And then, um, and then I rediscover a tool or someone teaches me something, a new variation of something that I used to know that makes that particular technique more accessible. So that's fun. Or sometimes I switch to no pajamas or I switch to pajamas, you know, back and forth. So there's that element of it. There's the physical element of it. Like you're describing, I don't, I don't even as much as possible. I try to avoid drilling stand up anymore because my knees do not like it. I won't belabor the point, but I've popped my knee just trying to set up an arm drag and just stepping the wrong way and popped my knee and had to stop. And the third thing, the third way that my jujitsu has evolved is in terms of my, my interpersonal focus. So my focus used to be solely on myself, my own training, my own progress. 
But as you progress through the ranks and take on more of a leadership role, um, I, I teach at the gym that I train at and have been teaching for a while, many years. And so the jujitsu energy or the energy that I have that's available for jujitsu used to be focused only on me. Now it's often focused outward. And so that also takes away from, and I don't mean that in a bad way because I love teaching and I love being supportive of students, but it's a, it's a re um, the ratio of, of jujitsu energy is different now because a lot of it goes to teaching which mm-hmm. means that in my case, less of it goes to my own learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Do you find too, just say you're teaching like basic moves. Do you find like, I do find when you do teach the moves, it solidifies it in your head more. Like when you're teaching like a trap and roll and you're doing, you're teaching the new student trap and roll, even though it's a move that you've done for 20 years, it just solidifies it in your head. So there is, there's a point where I still think the teacher gets better. Like I think when one teaches to learn, right? Like one, one person teaches, both people learn. But I hear like, I'm at the point now with you a little bit where I get as much satisfaction. Maybe 10 years ago, if I submitted somebody, I would be like excited. I'm just as excited now if a new student joins that like I did the introductory lesson do. And I show them the trap and roll and elbow escape. And I show them the basics of a real naked choke. And then like, oh yeah, John joined. I hear like, yeah. oh, he joined. I'm like, he signed up. I'm like, that excites me more than like, if I tap Bill, you know, if I tap Tim Rowling, another purple belt 10 years ago, you know, does that make sense? Like it that- makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think there's, I think I've had this conversation with multiple people about the archetypes of jujitsu. And if to the extent I ever embodied the warrior archetype, now I'm embodying the teacher archetype more. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that I don't still have a little inner warrior who wants to continue to train. And when I like hard rounds, it's just mean that it just means that, you know, the next day I don't do hard rounds. Sure. And so the teacher archetype is a really fun one because you do get to celebrate, you get to, to, um, participate in celebrating the the victories of your students and you get to make connections with students that way and as you said you get to continue to learn one story from the book and it's kind of a non sequitur one story i really liked is you would do rounds you were somewhere you were on your journey and you were doing rounds and then you would literally train for seven minutes i think it was and then you would take a round off and you would go into the bathroom and cry and then you'd come out and train then you come out and cry. And then at the end, you apologize. I'm so sorry. This shows what a badass you are. The people you're training with said, you don't need to apologize. You kept coming back. What made you just keep coming back? That is a really good question. As context, I was preparing for a tournament and we were doing tournament style rounds and I was training with men who I trusted implicitly. They were wonderful training partners. And I was crying because I was frustrated, I think, and I was overwhelmed. And this is what I mean about jujitsu being sort of all encompassing. And I mentioned I'm a crier. So I was feeling overwhelmed because I was trying so hard and I was getting physically exhausted. And so my resistance was down, my defenses were down, and I'm not thinking clearly, just all those things. So I, I'm not entirely sure what kept me coming out. I think what kept me coming out is that I didn't want to let down the people who were helping me 
I think there was also a part of me that just doesn't like leaving things unfinished. So it's a good question. And I think about that sometimes about what kept me coming back. Um, and I think it was a combination of those things. So these people were here to help me. I have to be respectful of them. And then the other thing was, I said I would do this. I have to do it. Transition over to a little part we call share your secrets. So our listeners can get to know you a little bit more as a person. Mm -hmm. um, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? When I need to clear my mind, there's a dog park around the corner from me from where I live and I go and watch the dogs. Awesome. It's hard to be in a bad mood. It's hard to be, again, anything but present when you're watching dogs with these huge, they look like smiles. Maybe they're not smiles, but they just look like they're so, <laughs> so happy. They're running around and play growling and all this kind of stuff. So I'll go to the dog park. And when I need to rejuvenate physically, I try to go to places where I can do the extremes of temperature. So sit in a sauna and then jump in a cold bath, go into a steam room, jump in, like jump in the cold bath again. So I try to do those sort of extremes of temperature because those really help me just sort of feel all like noodly and limp and like the blood is just coursing through my body. And I find that really restorative. I find the heat so much easier than the cold. Oh my gosh. Like I love the sauna. The sauna is like a vacation. When you jump in that cold plunge, oh my gosh, it's just hard to get used to, but it's so yeah. beneficial. There's a female out there thinking about training jujitsu, but it's a little scared, a little intimidated to walk into the academy. What would you tell them? So I tell them, I tell them two things. The first thing is if you want to be there, please be there. If you want to train, then jujitsu is for you. And the second thing I would tell them is that if the place that they're going doesn't feel like a place they want to be, or doesn't feel like a place that they, that wants them there, then they should look until they find that place. It's unfortunately no secret that there are a lot of people in jujitsu who will take advantage of everyone or anyone, but women and girls are, I think, particular group of people who can be vulnerable to being taken advantage of, especially the, the stereotype is the, of the black belt instructor, male instructor using his academy as a dating pool or worse. And so I would tell a girl or a woman who is looking to train that she belongs in training if that's what she wants. And she deserves to have training that's rigorous and and that's respectful of her as a student and as a person. Thank you for sharing that. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? Get in touch with your gut, with your intuition, with your instinct, whatever you call it. And let that be your guiding principle. It's really easy just in general in life to kind of go along with what everybody's doing because it's easy or because you think that's what you want or need. But I think each of us knows, and this is what coaching has taught me, professional coaching. Each of us has our own inner wisdom, but, and sometimes we ignore it because sometimes following our inner wisdom can upset other people. But if you can tap into your own intuition your own inner knowing, then that's the sweet spot. That's the good stuff. Here's a fun one. If you could spend a day, Valerie, 
with any historical figure, jujitsu instructor, alive or dead? Who would you spend the day with? I think I would spend the day with Carlson again. Oh, that's great. Any move you'd want to learn? Anything you'd like, oh, I wish I asked him this. Any question? If you had to ask him a question or him to show you something, what would it be? I wish I'd asked him more about competition strategy and mindset. Wrapping up here, Valerie, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, so now you got a couple, all right? Just the one. Just the one, (laughs) What would that quote or motto say? That quote would be stolen from a movie called Breaker Morant. Okay. Which is a great movie in and of itself. But the quote is, live each day as if it's your last, and someday you'll be right. Live each day as if it's your last, and someday you'll be right. Wow. I think that's about as good as a spot as any to wrap up. Valerie, I want to end with how you ended the book. I love the last couple sentences of your book, Training Wheels. This is from the end of the book. I realize now I have found what I was looking for. Contentment, flow to the nth degree, accomplishment, presence, maybe even a smidgen of that elusive transcendence, the sense that I did not need to be anywhere else and did not need to be anything else. The feeling in my brain, body, and heart that who and what I was was just exactly enough. That is Valerie Worthington, PhD. The book is Training Wheels, How Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Road Trip Jump-Started My Search for a Fulfilling Life, available on Amazon. Valerie, I'd like to thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Valerie, people are looking for you and what you do online. Where can we find you? So I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Those are mostly the places I am. And I'm also in Philly. So if anyone is listening who wants to come train, then they can get in touch with me. And you and I should figure out a time to train too. Let's do that. Now, that would be an honor to train with you. I will definitely reach out. We have to set that up. Awesome to see you. Thanks for coming out. Welcome. Thank you so much. But let's train soon. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.